Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Once again, big news on the vaccine front as we're on track to get shipments of Moderna's vaccine out very soon. On Tuesday, the FDA confirmed that Moderna's two-dose vaccine is safe and effective. On the first week of the rollout of the Moderna vaccine, we're expected to ship out 6 million doses. The government also bought another 100 million doses from Moderna for a total of 200 million at a cost of 3.2 billion. For more on all the good vaccine news, we'll speak to Sarah Overmall, healthcare reporter at Politico. This is basically deja vu for last week. So the Pfizer vaccine was authorized by FDA last week on very similar data, which is why we are pretty confident about the trajectory for this Moderna one. We expect that after an expert advisory panel meets on Thursday, the FDA could be authorizing it as soon as Friday morning, as it did with Pfizer. And then we will have a CDC panel meeting over the weekend to talk about recommendations for who this goes to first. But because these are really similar vaccines, they have a very similar technology called messenger RNA. They also have almost identical effectiveness rates. We can expect some of the same things. There are some important distinctions for the Moderna one, especially with certain populations that they have different data for. For instance, it shows that it's more effective in younger people than it is in people over the age of 65. That could be a really important distinction as we roll these doses out and find out that maybe the Pfizer one is more ideal for nursing homes and the Moderna one might be more ideal for people who work in high exposure areas but aren't necessarily as old as somebody who's in a more vulnerable situation. So these are the things we're going to find out over the next few days. But you're right, we could, as of next week, have millions more doses to be shipping out across the country. The initial round of doses are obviously limited. How many doses are we going to be able to see go out in the first push? So there actually will be more of the Moderna doses out in the first push than there were of the Pfizer ones. Government officials have said that nearly 6 million will be put out into more than 3,000 sites next week if we do have this authorized, which we're expected to. That's in comparison to 2.9 million doses from Pfizer that are going out as we speak and 2.9 million from Pfizer that have been held back for second dose. So between the two of them, each has promised 20 million doses apiece this month, which is 40 million total, but they all are two-dose regimens. You can think of this as 20 million very high-need people getting doses this month. There was some criticism with the government's action on the Pfizer vaccine for not buying that extension or extra doses. But on this case with the Moderna vaccine, the U.S. did exercise their right to buy 100 million additional doses of the Moderna vaccine. Tell us a little bit about that and then the costs associated with it, because this one is a little more closely tied to Operation Warp Speed. The government gave Moderna more money to develop this whole thing. Exactly. And so they had options with both of those pharmaceutical companies to buy 100 million doses originally, but the option to buy hundreds of millions more with each of them. The criticism lately has been that they did not exercise that option when they could have with Pfizer. So they had an option to buy up to 500 million doses from them. And according to Pfizer, they offered that to the government multiple times and the government didn't take them up on that. 
And so they moved on. They have signed multiple different agreements with other countries in the world. I mean, think about it. The entire world wants these highly effective vaccines. So kind of to stem that loss or to shore up our supplies here in the United States, the United States announced late last week that they would buy 100 million more of the Moderna vaccine. And that brings its total cost with Moderna to 3.2 billion dollars, which is eye popping. But when you think about how much this company, which has never actually mass produced a vaccine or product ever before Moderna, this is going to be their first authorized product. This is a huge undertaking. That's why there's so much money going towards this. So you can think about this as the U.S. trying to shore up its supplies in this arena, but it also has multiple other agreements out there with six manufacturers total to get, if everything goes right, 900 billion doses. That might seem like a lot, like way too much for the U.S., but we don't know how many of those are going to work. We even just learned last week that another vaccine from Sanofi and GlaxoSmithKline is going to be delayed until the end of 2021 because they didn't get really good results. So this is why the U.S. government is betting so big. Yeah, and the Moderna vaccine, for its part, is easier to ship and store than the Pfizer one is. So, you know, maybe this vaccine will make it into rural areas a little more easily. So there's benefits, you know, and pros and cons to each one kind of on this. So at least a good thing that they bought up a bunch of those extra orders. And last thing I wanted to ask real quick was just about how the Moderna vaccine protects. There's been things made that it can uh, reduce severe effects of coronavirus. They're hoping, obviously, that it'll reduce transmission rates. But that's kind of what the focus was of their study as well and just how effective this would be. So that was something we learned in the Food and Drug Administration's briefing documents Tuesday morning was that not only is this effective broadly, but there's a suggestion that after the first dose, it might have even have curbed infections. And you might think that's pretty obvious. That's what vaccines are supposed to do. But we don't actually know yet how effective vaccines would be at preventing transmission, which is kind of the ultimate goal. We don't want people to have to get sick in the first place. This indicates that the Moderna vaccine might be able to do that. And then, like you said, with severe COVID illness, there are really promising results from the Moderna vaccine. There were 30 severe illnesses in the placebo arm and none in the vaccine arm. That's great news. So we actually have, between this and Pfizer, two really promising candidates first out of the gate. We kind of couldn't expect for better, to be honest. So now it's, you know, it's the challenge of getting this out to people, getting it to the people who need it most right away and meeting the demand that we know we're going to have in the United States and also in the world. Sarah Overmall, healthcare reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Always. Thank you for having me. Big political news this week as Attorney General Bill Barr has called it quits. He put in his resignation and will leave shortly before Christmas, about a month before the Biden administration will take over. The relationship between Bill Barr and President Trump has soured in the last few months, especially after Barr said there was no widespread election fraud. For more on Bill Barr's last days and what his legacy is in the Department of Justice, we'll speak to Devlin Barrett, national security reporter at The Washington Post. We're told by folks on both sides of the conversation that he did resign and it was a his choice, not anyone else's. We continue to do reporting and ask questions, but both sides say fairly emphatically that it was an amicable parting that, you know, whatever the president's complaints have been in recent weeks and months, that was not what drove this particular decision on this particular day. And that's all we have to go on, really, though, those kind of disagreements between the president and Bill Barr. Bill Barr kind of made this splash on the stage right after 
Robert Mueller presented his report. And that was kind of the first big exposures that a lot of people had to Bill Barr, at least in the Trump administration. And from then on, you know, Bill Barr had been kind of accused of doing the president's bidding on a lot of things. He was a very big supporter of him. But even still, when it came down to things looking into the Russia probe, the Durham report, and even backing him on the election, that the election was stolen, those are big splits between uh, the attorney general and, and Donald Trump. And, you know, a lot of the president's complaints have been about things that Barr essentially would not do for him during the campaign, meaning, uh, you know, announce investigations or say that he had found significant voter fraud. Those are obviously very important things in the president's mind that Barr did for him. But it's it's an amazing arc. If you think about that relationship, Barr was for most of the two years he's been the attorney general, the president's most effective and most outspoken cabinet member. And you could really see a falling off in the relationship in the last month or so, really primarily because of the election. What does this say for the legacy of Bill Barr as attorney general? I mean, it's just a weird situation. I get it. The administration is going to be ending pretty soon, but you can't hold out one month. I don't know. That just kind of keeps playing in my head. Like what made it so urgent that you just had to get out right now? It's a great question. And I think part of what the curiosity is inside the Justice Department and even among, you know, former Justice Department officials is what's going to happen at the Justice Department in the next month? Are there going to be a large number of pardons or pardons of controversial cases like, for example, the Russia investigation cases or other cases that would displease or anger people at the Justice Department? You know, there's been folks advocating for a pardon for Julian Assange of WikiLeaks advocating for a pardon of Edward Snowden, the former NSA contractor. And I think one of the big questions that remains to be answered is, do we end up seeing the types of pardons that Bill Barr will be glad he wasn't there to have to deal with or answer questions about? Because that's pardons are obviously completely the president's prerogative. But we just don't know. And that's, I think, one of the big unanswered questions as we head into sort of this last month of the Trump administration. How was Bill Barr received by his colleagues and his subordinates in the Justice Department? My understanding and some of the things I read in your article even is that morale was down at the Department of Justice for some time, too. People felt like they weren't being heard, things like that. I think Barr, especially toward the end of his time, had a very strained relationship with a lot of the folks at the Justice Department. Not his inner circle, obviously. But the rank and file, the the career prosecutors, he gave a a speech in September, which is still pretty jarring when you read it, just talking about how career officials were themselves often acting politically and with poor motives or wrong motives. And I just never seen the leader of an agency publicly attack the employees of that agency while he was still he or she was still running that agency. That's just an incredibly strange thing to do. And the relationship between Barr and a lot of Justice Department employees was very strained. Some of them wrote letters during the election campaign, public letters to newspapers denouncing Bill Barr, which is pretty much unheard of. It's been a tough time for morale, I'd say, at the department for the last year or so. And I think there's a fair bit of relief among current and former officials that he's leaving even a little bit early. One of the big rifts between Bill Barr and President Trump was that he didn't announce that there was any investigation into Hunter Biden, uh, Joe Biden's son, for failing to report income in China, things with Burisma. There's a lot of stuff going on there. What does this mean for the incoming you know, head of the D- Department of Justice, uh, Joe Biden's pick for attorney general? H- how does all this kind of impact and, and kind of flow into that? Well, it's been a really interesting process to watch the Biden transition folks 
seemingly struggle to pick an attorney general candidate. You know, the attorney general is a big enough job that it's usually picked earlier in this process. And all our reporting is that they are still working on it as they've been working on it for weeks now. And I think whoever the next attorney general is, is going to have one, a very tough confirmation fight, because I think both parties understand the importance of that job and how the ability of whoever the attorney general is to steer or stop investigations can be so key in Washington and in government. And two, once they're confirmed, they're going to have a huge task ahead of them in terms of improving morale, restoring some confidence in the public's perception of the Justice Department, and sort of ending some of these battles that have been raging both in and around the Justice Department for the last four years. Devlin Barrett, national security reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Oscar. The novel coronavirus has been with us for about a year now. We have vaccines rolling out and know a lot about the virus that has wreaked havoc on the world. But we still have many questions. It's a virus of contrast. It's dangerous enough to send some people to the hospital and kill over 1.6 million people worldwide, but mild enough for many to recover quickly or be asymptomatic. For more on what we know about coronavirus one year in, We'll speak to Andrew Joseph, reporter at Stat News. Experts have talked about how it's hard to communicate to the public about a virus that, you know, one in five people who get it will show no symptoms at all, whereas like the same portion of people will get severely sick and need to be hospitalized and a portion of them will die. It does show this huge array of both severity of disease and also what that disease looks like. We typically think of this as a respiratory infection, which it is, but there's also evidence that it can damage people's hearts, uh, get into their GI tract, and can even, you know, there's neurological and psychiatric effects as well in some people. So it, it's not just one thing. And I think that's been one of the challenges about trying to sort of help people understand what's going on. Yeah, that's one of the important distinctions there, that it's not just a respiratory disease because it does get all over the body in some cases. And as we mentioned, there's a lot of inflammation in the body that happens as a result of what's going on. And this is what makes people that have these underlying health conditions, these comorbidities, this is what makes them more susceptible to that. So that's one of the big major things about it. People probably know by now that like age is a big risk factor. The older you are, the more likely you are to get severe illness. And as you mentioned, underlying health conditions. And, And basically what that does is it means your immune system can't sort of mount as quick of a response And sort of almost like paradoxically, that makes it more likely that your immune system is going to get into this dangerous overdrive because it has these initial faults. Sort of what it tries to do is that it overcompensates for those initial faults. So that's kind of when people can get severely sick. One of the other things that you mentioned just a little bit ago, too, was this whole notion about the infectious period and being asymptomatic. That's one of the things that this virus has had kind of in its back pocket, really, that's helped it spread so much. This whole point of being asymptomatic and still being able to spread it has been a real problem for everybody. People probably remember other coronaviruses have kind of crossed over from animals into people in the past couple of decades, the original SARS virus and something called MERS. And those are more serious diseases. They cause more serious diseases than this virus, but but people are only infectious once they start showing symptoms. And so it's just much easier to control a virus when you kind of have that obvious sign of who might have it. With this virus, which is sort of scientifically known as SARS-CoV-2, and it causes a disease called COVID-19, yeah, people can spread it either if they never show symptoms or if they do show symptoms, like in the days before symptoms appear. And so that's just like a huge advantage to the virus, which is trying to go around and find new cells to infect because 
people can just kind of just be going about their lives, not feel sick at all, not feel like they need to stay in bed and be spreading the virus. And that's sort of one of the reasons why there's been such a urgency for people, even people who think they're okay to wear masks, because there's a lot of people spreading the virus out there who don't realize they have it. And so that's why it's recommended that everyone wear masks sort of in public or when they're around people who aren't part of their households. What do we know about how this virus has changed over time? Because all viruses mutate from person to person and all that. We've heard a couple of recent headlines about a new strain showing up in the UK, but we've heard that before, just strains coming out of China and and Europe. So what do we know about how this has changed over time? So viruses change, as you said. Coronaviruses don't change as quickly as something like flu, for example, but they do change. Yeah, there have been various reports about different variants emerging, and a lot of that is just like a little unclear about what a lot of that means, just because it's still so new and because you can't really tell what the impact of each variant might be. There is one variant that was caused by mutation pretty early on in the virus, and it's pretty widely accepted now that it has helped the virus spread a little bit more efficiently than the original virus that emerged. It was just a single mutation that did that, and that happened in China back in the spring. And that virus kind of became the dominant strain around the world, went from China to Europe to the United States. And so it's not that this variant is uncontrollable or that the other one wasn't spreading well. It's just you gave it a little bit of a boost. And I guess importantly to say, it doesn't seem to have had an impact on how sick it makes people. And so I guess the thing about mutations is, yeah, sure, it could change how infectious the, the virus becomes. It could change how dangerous the virus becomes. But the main thing people are watching for with mutations is to make sure the virus doesn't change so much that the vaccines that are coming to the public now lose their effectiveness. And so that's theoretically a possibility and scientists are watching out for that, but they don't think it's like going to be something like flu where they need to recraft their vaccines every year. It doesn't change quite as rapidly as that. This is a novel coronavirus. We've been learning about this thing almost in real time as we've been going through the pandemic. What are some of the big questions that are still left? I know we're still wondering how long immunity might last for somebody or how long the antibodies stick around for people that have had it. But what are some of the big questions we have left about this virus? You know, there's a lot of like sort of wonky scientific things, you know, scientists are trying to figure out about structure and about exactly what happens when the virus infects people. I guess the two main questions that I think about is that it's sort of getting a better understanding of who is at risk for more severe COVID. You know, we know these risk factors, but still, even if you have risk factors, you're most likely going to be okay. So it's trying to sort of get into a little bit more nitty gritty detail about who is really at most at risk and why. When that's probably a multifaceted explanation, which is why they, people haven't figured that out yet. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, the protection, how long the protection lasts. And, you know, it's not going to be one answer. People will have different responses. And that's both to getting infected by the virus itself or to the vaccines. So there's not going to be a clear answer, but I think scientists will want to know generally how long immune protection lasts, whether from the infection or from the vaccines. And that just, you know, that just takes time. They need to study people, you know, and their immune responses over time to know that answer. Right. I mean, it's been quite the roller coaster with this virus shutting down the world at one point. You know, we've learned a lot. There's still more questions. I mean, it's going to be one of these things we're going to look at for many, many years to come. Andrew Joseph, reporter at Stat News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.